Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Good morning. Will an AI future be powered primarily by NVIDIA hardware? We're going to take a look at NVIDIA's long-term runway when it comes to AI. And this week, you know, the VIX, the fear gauge, hit its highest level in two months. And we've also seen a budding surge um, in, in treasury auctions, right? This in a context where we're seeing a surge in long-term rates. So as volatility levels rise, what can investors expect of the U.S. bond market? Then we talk world coin. Is the next thing for our wired world the trend of verifying if you're an actual human being and not a bot? A new crypto firm wants to scan your eyeballs and gives you tokens in returns. Question is, should you look away? I'm Michelle Martin. This is Money and Me. And my guest today is Arun Pai. He is the man when it comes to all things to do with the stock market from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. Good morning, Arun. How are you? Morning, Michelle. I'm very good. How are you? Great to speak with you. I'm excited to talk to you as always. Let's start with NVIDIA. So it's really interesting. Yesterday, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang, founder as well, came out and said, you know, the company made a bet. It bet the farm on AI back in 2018, back when few of us realized that AI was going to redefine the future. And that bet, he said, has paid off enormously and that it's only the beginning of an AI-powered near future that he believes will be powered primarily by NVIDIA hardware. So Huang was speaking at a keynote at a conference in LA and, uh, you know, talking about this watershed moment of, about the company betting the farm on AI with no one knowing. Let me me ask you, what do you think about NVIDIA and AI? Look, I mean, there's no disputing. If you look at the share price, I think currently the market cap of the company is over a trillion dollars, having gone up close to 4x in the past uh, about a year, year and a half odd, right? On the back of, largely on the back of this generative AI boom. So, I mean, talk about being a complete oracle in this space. Uh, the founder, CEO, Jensen, has absolutely nailed this. I would highly encourage your listeners. He was in uh, Taipei, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of months ago, and he gave mm. a speech over there, which was just truly amazing, the way he thinks about the business, the way he thinks about the future of the world. Uh, highly encourage your listeners uh, to listen to that. But anyway, coming back to NVIDIA very specifically, they've been one of the biggest value accretive investments in the entire AI space, right? So being, being in the venture capital space, uh, we look at early stage private investment and there's been a whole bunch of them, right? I mean, every other day, there's another generative AI company that's stepping up to the plate, raising tremendous amounts of money, competitors of ChatGPT, OpenAI, open other kinds of applications that layer on top of it. And there's this big question, right? Like where will, at steady state, so let's say in a couple of years time, where will value actually accrue in this entire supply chain? Yeah. Will it be in the front-end apps? Will it be in the foundational models? Or will it also potentially be in the hardware space? And one thing that's quite clear out of all of this is that the core hardware space in which NVIDIA has a massive lead has been a most, like, most definitely been a massive winner. Now, why exactly is that? NVIDIA, you know, for some people who are into gaming, would be very familiar with the brand name. Right, because the the if you go back like five ten years, GPUs or graphic processing units of Nvidia was 
the industry benchmark if you wanted to play very heavy, you know, computational usage-powered game. That was the genesis of it. Now, coincidentally enough, the similar-ish technology, the similar-ish GPU-based case is being used extensively in uh, artificial intelligence. Why is that? Because, and apologies for going a little bit more technical No, here. super excited. <laughs> I'm at the edge of seat. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll try and make it as simple as possible. <laughs> but basically what a GPU can do is it can compute a large number of mathematical instances per cycle. So going further back in time, right, when the days of the CPU was there also, you were, the CPU on an average was able to, at the beginning, produce, like, do one math instance per cycle. It's obviously technology improved to get up to a couple of thousand. GPUs can do 100,000, if not more, number of mathematical instances. You take a bunch of GPUs, you group them together, you get servers. You group a bunch of servers together and you get this whole data center, which, you know, you've got a whole bunch of REITs that are investing into data centers. But the whole core component of that goes all the way back down to individual GPUs. Now, in that space, NVIDIA has had a huge, you know, uh, as you were mentioning, the founder being the oracle in this space decided to invest heavily in this like four or five years ago. So they've got a huge head start. But the beauty is now, if you look at it on a pure hardware perspective, NVIDIA's uh, A100, which is the industry benchmark, if you want to call it, for uh, if you want to do like heavy artificial intelligence computation, uh, it's the industry benchmark. But on a pure hardware perspective, it's actually not the fastest. There are a couple of other companies out there that can that have raw hardware faster chips. The problem, though, is the entire software ecosystem around that hardware has been developed primarily on the back of using NVIDIA hardware chips. So think of yourself as, you know, uh, I'm personally not smart enough, but if I was a developer in deep tech AI space, I've, I've got my own proprietary model. I'm taking a whole bunch of other open source models. Those open source models, because it's the developer ecosystem that NVIDIA has curated over the past bunch of years, they've been optimized specifically on the NVIDIA chip. Now that that becomes a huge competitive mode for any other pure-blooded hardware player to encroach on, right? So everyone thinks of NVIDIA as a pure hardware company, which it is. But at the same time, there's this huge software layer on top of it that it's curated with its developer ecosystem. And that actually forms the real competitive mode. So even if there are other competitors that, are, that come up with faster, pure hardware specifications, it's still very, very difficult to dislodge NVIDIA from the top of the perch. And that's exactly why, even though personally as a value investor, it's extremely difficult to look at a 200 plus price to earnings ratio multiple business. That's what the true secret sauce is in a way of NVIDIA. Wow, that was great, Arun. Thank you for helping us with that key question. Uh, How do we think through opportunities in the generative AI value chain and where does NVIDIA uh, sit in that chain as well? That was great. Really fantastic. And uh, you know, I don't know much about GPUs and CPUs, but I understand CPUs are processes for the overall functioning of the computer, whereas GPUs are these specialized processes meant to enhance graphics and computing. And if you think about the metaverse and how so much is going to depend on high-resolution images and video, then GPUs that can perform these these functions fast and at lower costs um, are, are going to be very important. So I guess the next question is to what extent is there reliance on uh, NVIDIA's hardware and software in, in this stack, right? Uh, uh, right now, there is, I, I mean, you can't think of a single large 
software application layer business that's not in some way, shape, or form going to use uh, NVIDIA chips extensively. My right? It's just the, the, it, because it's not just like one person sitting in a room that can try to uh, come up with something new, right? I mean, it requires the entire ecosystem. Mm. And from that perspective, there literally is no other large game in town other than NVIDIA in this space. So they've got a huge lead. Look, again, the, it's the nature of capitalism, right? When anyone sees that there's so much profit margin over there, mm-hmm. you are going to have people attacking it from multiple perspectives. The advantage, though, I think that NVIDIA has over potentially some others, it has a founder-led CEO mm-hmm. that potentially has a much more longer term. Look, he's made his money, right? And then some. He doesn't care necessarily that much about Wall Street's quarterly earnings uh, or other short-term metrics. He's really thinking about the long term. And because he's the founder of the company, the market does give him that leeway to try and execute on that vision. It's like, you know, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. To some extent, dare I say, and there has been a resurgence on this, Mark Zuckerberg and Meta, uh, Elon Musk and Tesla, just being that founder CEO uh, gives you a certain amount of gravitas with the market. Obviously, you know, not letting hubris uh, come into play. But on the back of that, given what uh, Jensen has been able to pull off so far in the past couple of decades in NVIDIA, he does have a certain leeway to deploy, to redeploy a whole bunch of earnings that he's generating from this vertical back into the company and continue to enhance those competitive, the, the, the competitive mode of the business. So it is going to be extremely difficult, I feel, for any pure-blooded hardware company to just come into this space and just say, look, I've got a much stronger hardware uh, specifications. So a new company will really need to curate a whole bunch of software developers, create that ecosystem around it, which uh, takes a lot of time. And in that time, if NVIDIA does the right steps in the future, they can just keep uh, expanding on their competitive advantage. So. Uh, They're in a very good spot right now. (laughs) They're in a very good spot. So we've taken you to the company that really is at the heart and soul of the basic unit of an AI-dominated future. So fascinating, Arun. Thank you for that. All right. This week, a lot of attention is being focused on the bond market. Yesterday, we were looking at sales of about $42 billion for the three-year tenors. And then there's a 10-year auction today and then a 30-year auction uh, a day later. So altogether about $103 billion in bonds um, being auctioned off this week. And then there's the T-bills that you have to consider extra two to two billion. So as volatility levels rise, what do you think investors can expect of, of the U.S. bond market, Arun? Yeah, so you're right, right? Like this week uh, is going to be seeing a bit of a larger supply uh, in the market for uh, government bonds, treasuries, uh, across the board, across the entire tenor spectrum. But maybe taking a step back, I, I, I think a little bit of rumblings came into the market, uh, I think it was last week or a week ago, when uh, a credit agency basically downgraded U.S. credit. The Fitch right? slap heard around the world, yeah. Right. And that led to a, a lot of uh, noise, uh, dare I say, in the media, both on pros as well as cons, right? Now, on the uh, negative side, there is a fundamental issue with the fact that the U.S. budget has been so imbalanced. They're running such a negative trade surplus for decades, right? And obviously, all of this extra government spending uh, on the back of COVID primarily, but even before that for the GFC, has led to a huge uh, gaping hole in the budget. Now, Fitch was very clear. They said that, look, it's nothing about this downgrade because of concerns in the short term, but we are concerned about all of this bipartisan noise that's happening in uh, Washington, D.C. Mm. that's leading us to question 
question what is going to be the state of affairs looking into a crystal ball in the medium to long term future. And I think that's a very valid concern, right? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there were all these like new stick bits that came out where uh, Buffett came onto the show and was like, oh, don't worry, like I'm buying US government bond issues. Uh, to be very clear though, Buffett is buying like three month, six month uh, treasuries. He is not buying 20 or 30 year like long dated bonds. Right. So it's two very, very different things. One is you're taking a very short term, quote unquote, risk, credit risk on the U.S. government to the point of three months or six months, the tenor of the note mm. vis-a-vis uh, the longer dated one. So from that perspective, I think it, uh, it depends on where you're trying to park your capital. Right. Now, why is fixed income such an interesting and even for me personally, why is it such an interesting asset class? Finally, is because the U.S. Fed has increased rate in the most dramatic fashion ever uh, to over well over 5% right now. Right. And yeah. this is after close to since 2008. So basically, it's been 15 years of close to 0% interest. So finally, your cash can earn something, probably not leaving it in your bank account. You need to probably look at like short-term fixed deposits, etc. But you can actually earn a very decent income on that, especially now that inflation, which was kind of peaking at 7, 8 plus percent, which would have made you receive negative carry, uh, that's been steadily coming down. Mm-hmm. So you could potentially look to earn a net positive carry on uh, depositing your cash in fixed income instruments. So putting all of that together, short-term fixed income, I think is one of the most attractive places to part capital if you're a bit unsure about what the world is looking like, economic instability, political instability in certain places, etc. Short-term fixed income, excellent place. Long-term fixed income, I think it's still a little bit of a question mark. Uh, because uh, right now, while headline-wise, it does seem to be relatively attractive levels as compared to before. But I think we were living in a very weird space for the past 15 years, if I could be honest. I I don't think we've ever seen uh, a situation where interest rates were basically 0% and inflation was close to zero also. Now I think things have turned around a lot. So personally, when I look at the fixed income space, I'm looking at more like short term, uh, either government bonds itself or taking on slightly more credit risk and taking a look at some corporate paper. From the perspective of anything more than like three to five years out, uh, I'm still a little bit more circumspect. Okay. In terms of overall allocations in portfolios, uh, should the dominant allocation for investors still be fixed income? It really depends on your individual risk reward, right? I, I think in, in this day and age, given the fact of uh, a whole bunch of interesting startups, and you know, I was part of the founding team at Crystal AI, there's Endowist, there's Scythe, there's Stashaway. There's a whole bunch of robo-advisors out there uh, through which you as an individual can receive quote unquote, more personalized advice on how to do investing, right? Like gone are the days where you needed a private banker and you needed to be worth more than $5 million to be able to get personal advice. Mm -hmm. You can literally input in your risk reward characteristics, your age, how much you're earning, how much you're spending, and put in all of this data into these systems and it can spit out and, you know, obviously try out all of them, see which one suits you best. Uh, This is not a marketing pitch for any of them, Uh, but, you know, do do your due diligence, do your analysis, figure out, try try out most of them, uh, figure out what gives you the best output that you feel most comfortable with, and then go ahead. So the dominant allocation may not have to be bonds. Look, okay, so if you ask me individually, this is not, again, financial advice by any stretch of the means. For me individually, Hmm. I, I have, I try to take a much more longer term approach to investing, not necessarily being concerned about uh, my mark-to-market drawdown, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm still an earning member of society. 
uh, at least last time I checked. Uh, and as long as I keep getting that money inflow and I can manage my expenses, uh, I would rather I, I keep the savings for putting money into longer term investing, mm. not caring necessarily if and I don't even look at my portfolio on day to day, week to week, sometimes mm. even on a monthly basis. Right? It's so long I, term. It, it, OK, it's long term. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, it's different for mm-hmm. some people. Uh, this savings becomes their what they can draw down on to uh, spend money on a daily, weekly, monthly basis for, I don't know, rentals, for living, for traveling, for holiday, etc. If you're in that kind of a situation, you can't just park 95% of your money in equity where there could easily be a 30-40% drawdown over the next couple of years, right? Because that's your livelihood. You'd want to have a much larger percentage in fixed income, but for the first time over the past year or fixed income has become a relevant asset class so you can actually earn a decent amount of money on it without necessarily taking too much credit risk. That's it. So from that perspective, I think it's quite an interesting asset class right now. Thank you so much for that. I want to rack your brains now. Pick your brains on WorldCoin. People have been signing up for this scheme via an app this week for a Genesis grant, a token drop of about 25 tokens, and that's equivalent to about 68 Sing dollars. And in return, no free lunch in any town, right? People have to have their iris scanned by a certain sort of device, and then you will receive a World ID, which the World Coin uh, Scheme Dreamers say will prove that you are a real and unique person while preserving your privacy. And you also get a crypto wallet on your smartphone. The project was launched by Sam Altman, uh, he of the Open AI machine learning research firm, people behind ChatGPT. Um, so many, many questions. Why does the founder of ChatGPT want? my eyeball scan. <laughs> Why does WorldCoin want to prove someone's actually human? But first up, Arun, would you give up your retina scan for some WorldCoin? Most definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, honestly, I uh, it could be interesting tech. It might not be interesting tech. Either way, I, I don't feel... And this is a very... Okay, let me put a caveat to that. Okay. It's, it's a very easy statement for me as a Singapore citizen to make uh, because I think there's a lot of implicit trust uh, within the government system in Singapore. And, I, and I'm fully cognizant that we... That and I do really do feel that we sh- we are truly blessed to have that, right? Mm-hmm. That being said, though, if I'm a citizen of a uh, developing country or, you know, all those other horror stories that we've obviously read about in history books and some of which are happening today, it's a bit of a question mark as to what is your belief system of your own government. And But I don't think the right solution to that is a private slash not-for-profit company coming in and trying to create this global database. There'll be all sorts of laws and regulations against it. Mm. And I just don't see how this can fully scale up unless it has a full government backing behind it. I mean, just, just take a simple thing like going back to, and we discussed this, I think, on your show over a year ago, a year and a half ago, mm. when Facebook, when Meta was coming out with its uh, cryptocurrency. Right, Libra or something. Yeah, and governments across the board were like, "We're not going to let you have a world." I mean, we let you have the world platform for social media and for people to voice their opinions and whatnot. We're not going to let you control currency on top of that. And that's something that's very much in the government uh, domain. So I, I just don't see how identification, which is something very core to uh, obviously the government and its citizens, how anyone would uh, be okay with that. Yeah, yeah. So this is about uh, basically 
identity systems that most of the world's governments and countries have in place because governments need these systems, of course, and then there are KYC rules that are built on top of that as well. What I didn't get about this world coin is what is this link between it and a universal basic income system that it's trying to propagate by giving out these coins, do you know? Yeah, so the idea is once you can, so the whole uh, genesis is, you know, like singularity, right? Where this concept of artificial intelligence or the, you know, Gen AI or the future iterations of this technology will basically lead to such high productivity that robots will be able to control everything. And all of us can just sit back, relax, sip on our pina coladas uh, by the beach or in the city or something. And that, that's where universal basic income comes along. So there'll be some companies or some people who will basically become like multi-gazillion trillionaires uh, who control this tech because naturally capitalism you know, will flow into some of these successful companies. Capital flow will go into that. Uh, earning huge amounts of money, there'll be so much profits from that perspective. Uh, they can potentially be heavily taxed. Uh, government coffers are full, money can be taken out of there and just be given to the 99% of others who will be uh, without a job or displaced because of this tech, right? Like that's the end, call it uh, uh, utopian or dystopian, whichever way you want to <laughs> think about it. Yeah. That's the kind of future that people are potentially envisioning. And so for that perspective, how do you give out money in a very seamless manner to 8 billion or 10 billion people by that time in a very seamless manner. And that's the whole premise of underlying crypto rails, but you need to be able to do a global KYC and hence setting up this infrastructure, I would say. Personally, though, I think the way it's eventually going to end up, even if, you know, obviously uh, not going to any extremes because very rarely does that actually happen. Mm -hmm. I think what will eventually happen is uh, governments need to have control over this. Government in turn will be given a certain amount of pool of assets uh, thanks to the productivity of this underlying technology. And that in turn is going to be dispersed out like it is right now. I mean, India has UPI, we have FAST, Indonesia is coming up with its own QRIS. Most countries across the globe have some form of digital connectivity to its end users at this point. And I think you just have to use those underlying rails because there's no way a government's going to feed control over its uh, its own citizens. So that's my perspective. Th- thank you very much for that. Arun Pai from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures, helping us understand WorldCoin, the U.S. bond market gyrations, and whether or not AI can do to NVIDIA what the dot-com boom did to Sun Microsystems. Arun, thank you so much. Thanks for having me as always. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.